Hello, thanks for listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm Jack Aldane, and on this episode, I'm going to be reintroducing former guest, the journalist Nick Wallace, to talk about his new book, Depth V Heard, The Unreal Story. Let's raise our glasses. Okay, fantastic. Here we, we are. Where are we going? At Babucci. Yeah, the only Babucci in the country. The only Babucci in the country. I wondered what it meant. Yeah. I've never actually had a straight answer to what it means, but I think what it means is that there is no other Babucci in the country, so you can always find it. Long-term listeners of The Booking Club may recognise this voice. This is the voice of journalist Nick Wallace, who covered the great post office scandal and uh, who is author of a new book, Depth He Heard, The Unreal Story, the book we're here to talk about on this episode. Nick, it's great to see you again, and thank you very much for inviting me to Waltham on Thames. Well, thank you very much for coming all this way out of that London. I know it's, I know it's quite difficult to get Londoners beyond Zone 6. They tend to break out in hives, but I'm, I'm grateful to you for making Don't the, pretend that you're, not, you're a Londoner as much <laughs> well, no, as I, I am. Knew, I, I was a Londoner, <laughs> and, I, and I was very, very reluctant to leave Zone 2. About Babucci, then, you alluded <clears throat> to it there. Tell us, what makes this place so close to your heart, being a local after all? This, this is the best curry house for miles, and there have been several restaurants here since I've been living here in t- since 2006. And when this place came along, you try it, because it's pretty much at the end of my road. And we instantly thought, well, they're onto something here. The food was really good. But it's the welcome that you get and the service and the general friendliness of the staff. And because we've been coming here so long, I have my 50th birthday here and, um, you know, they, they basically let, let us have the place to our own devices. And, and yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super, super nice here. They've looked after us. And I mean, you know, I don't come every night, but they still know who I am when I come in. Oh, Mr. Wallace, hi, how are you? Yeah. Well, no sooner had we sat down and got set up that the poppadoms <laughs> are here already. <laughs> That's right. All the accoutrements. <laughs> they know I like my cobra as well. That's so right. And two ice cold good. glasses of cobra anyway, lager. Fantastic. Do. I don't know what babucci means. I've never had a straight answer, but it is the only babucci. So if you're booking at babucci or you're looking it up online, sounds Italian. It does. I think they pluck the name out of the air, but it's great. And it's it's lasted as well because they had a terrible time during the pandemic like mm. every restaurant mm. did and you know when you've got a great what i consider to be a community asset frankly at the end of the road you don't want it to die they managed to get through it and since then you know they're, they're, they're getting half full on a on a monday night last night they had an abba tribute act in every table completely heaving so you know fair place to them have we already nodded to the type of i mean i mentioned the papa doms this is of course an indian restaurant should have, should have mentioned yes, that shouldn't exactly, we? i mentioned yeah, yeah. cobra beer sounds like I? an italian <laughs> is in fact indian and as you say unusual for any restaurant but uh, i suppose an indian in particular an abba tribute tax so <laughs> it does it does more than your average by far yeah yeah the new I haven't, we haven't yet got to the stage where we're buying the new year's eve all you can eat buffet tickets with the elvis impersonator but i'm sure i'm sure it's only a couple of years away <laughs> your bread and butter is reporting on court cases You've covered both trials of the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard defamation lawsuit. He sued the Sun newspaper in the UK Mm -hmm. and sued her in the US. That's right. They're both his litigations. I think I'm going to leave it to you to give listeners a brief synopsis for those who didn't pay attention last year. And it was this time last year, wasn't it? It was this time last year. In fact, what date are we? It's the 25th we're recording this on. Can't remember whether we were in court this day. I think we were. It rings a bell. We were heading towards the end of the trial. So, 
they started going out late 2011, although it didn't become public until 2012. They had a tempestuous relationship, which um, was certainly having its up and downs within their private circle before they got married, but they decided to get married anyway in February 2015. But by the middle of 2016, they had split up with Amber Heard saying that uh, Johnny Depp had been violent towards her and she got out a domestic violence restraining order against him. And that was all settled the same year with a statement that was jointly issued in which they essentially alluded to the fact that it, there was a lot of passion in the relationship, but there was no abuse involved in any way. Then, in 2018, Dan Wooten at the Sun newspaper wrote an article attacking J.K. Rowling, saying, how is it that J.K. Rowling can be, quotes, genuinely happy, which was a J.K. Rowling quote, how can she be genuinely happy casting Johnny Depp in her Fantastic Beasts franchise, given that she is a feminist, given that she's spoken up for victims of abuse, given that she has suffered abuse in the past herself. And that was titled, well, basically used the phrase wife beater in it, in the title of the, of the piece. And Johnny Depp sued over that, despite the fact that Wife Beater was dropped very quickly from the headline of the piece um, within hours, uh, there was a different headline. And it remains online with a different headline, but the Wife Beater uh, allegation was, was one of the points on which he sued. And it's worth remembering that Johnny Depp has been very much an Anglophile for such a long time. I mean, he really cares how he's perceived in the UK. Yeah, I think so. I think there's also the fact that, that um, the libel courts in the UK are very friendly towards plaintiffs. And he was probably expecting to get a result. That's something else we need to come on to, isn't it? The yeah. differences between libel laws in the UK and US. Well, Sorry, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no, getting no, no, in your way. Listen, listen we, can, we can ramble as much as you like. I mean, I, I'm pretty certain, and I have it on good authority, that had The Sun not persuaded Amber Heard to come and give evidence on their behalf in the UK libel trial, then they would have tried to settle. Whether Johnny Depp would have settled or not is another matter. But I mean, you could see, look, here's a, here's a sum of money and a profuse apology. But they managed to persuade Amber Heard to come over and give evidence and be their star witness. Anyway, that's the UK. So the article was 2018 and the court case took place in 2020. Amber Heard, for reasons best known to herself, because I guess she wanted to speak what she calls her truth, decided to set herself up as a spokesperson for domestic violence. And throughout the course of 2018, she was having discussions with the American Civil Liberties Union about... Uh, whether or not um, she should or could become an ambassador for them on issues of gender-based violence. Mm. Uh, she eventually did, and they sort of announced this with an article that she put her name to in the Washington Post, which was drafted by the ACLU, in which she said she was a public figure representing domestic abuse and alluded to the domestic violence restraining order that she took out whilst she was married to Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp sued over that. And so, so you had these two articles in 2018. The Sun one came to court in 2020. It was called Debt VNGN because newsgroup newspapers owns The Sun. So it was Debt VNGN and Dan Wooten. He was personally sued. And then in 2022, last year, it finally got to court Debt v. Heard, which was over the 2018 article in the Washington Post. That was just purely delayed twice because of the pandemic. Mm. So that's that's. That's the chronology. Your book, actually, in terms of chronology, goes through the whole of the trial that you covered in Virginia, Fairfax County Court. Virginia yeah. is for lovers, they say. Kind of ironic, isn't it? And there was already a sense from where you stood that there was a, a sort of heavily weighted support network for one side over the other. Can you just describe the first things you noticed and when you started to recognise that there was something of a movement behind this? Oh, well before 
the 2022 court case. It, it, it was the moment I walked into court in July 2020 to cover Debt VNGN and started tweeting about this. And my Twitter mentions and followers started clicking up like a fruit machine reel. It was phenomenal. I'd never seen anything like this. And I know Johnny Depp is a big star. I remember Edward Scissorhands when it came out. I was must have been 16, 17 years old. And so it was a seminal moment when he was announced on the world stage. He was already a big TV star in America when that happened. And this is one of the things that we perhaps in this country don't really appreciate. We all know who Johnny Depp is. We all know he is a massive film star. He had achieved worldwide fame at a very young age in 1990 with Edward Scissorhands. But the thing that made him in my son's uh, phraseology god tier was Jack Sparrow. Captain Jack Sparrow was in Pirates of the Caribbean. And the reason for that is because he consciously went about creating a character or reinventing an archetype, that of the pirate, in a way that was based on cartoons. He was, Roadrunner was one of his inspirations, or, or Wile E. Coyote. The way that Wile E. Coyote sort of gets his head chopped in half in one scene in the cartoon, and then the next time you see him with a little bandage and a lump on his head, and he's off on a new adventure. He consciously went about creating this character, which it was given to him as part of a script, and he, he was inspired enough by it to want to work on this to create a character which would appeal to all ages it would appeal to the preschool kids he was watching cartoons with his daughter lily rose at the time and he wanted something that would work for grown-ups and and grandparents and the like and he consciously put together pretty much by himself the concept of captain jack sparrow which was a, a roaring success the moment it appeared in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, it took him from yes. movie star to cultural icon. This, this is what we perhaps don't understand as much in this country as in America. Nowadays, a pirate is Captain Jack Sparrow. Before Captain Jack Sparrow, it was Long John Silver and the, the wooden leg and the parrot on the shoulder and the tricorn hat. Roger Ebert, the critic, describes Captain Jack Sparrow as Johnny Depp channeling a drunken drag queen. You know, heavily eyelinered, dissolute kind of character who was funny and interesting and captivating to men and women of all ages and children as well. So this invention of his elevated him in the American pantheon of movie stars to the absolute highest level. And he was tapping into a subconscious cultural understanding that in America, where they don't have royalty, they have their president, but they also have their movie stars and their celebrities who they they view in a slightly different way th than we do. He, he became something that became part of our cultural or their cultural unconscious. Mm. Uh, my view of Johnny Depp was that he's made a few decent films, he's got off the boil a bit recently, this was by 2020. I thought Captain Jack Sparrow was quite funny when I first saw him and, you know, well, well done Johnny Depp. Everything seems to be pointing in the direction of you being quite an interesting person. I didn't quite realise, you know, whose pitch was queered by the allegations that Amber Heard made against him in 2016. I didn't quite realise just how big a deal he still is. He has legions and legions and legions of fans across generations, those who grew up with him and those who came to him later, those who came to him as preschool children and you know, grown up with Captain Jack Sparrow. And he is such a big deal. And he crosses over cultural domains, his relationship with Hunter S. Thompson when Hunter S. Thompson was alive, the music scene which he's reintegrated with. But at the same time that you say he'd created this kind of cultural force with Jack Sparrow, 
He was also growing weary and dissatisfied with his acting legacy around the time of the first allegations made against him. In 2015, he was very much unhappy with life, Mm. with his career and with his relationship. And there are texts that came out in court from the time where he basically has problems with Hollywood, has problems with um, his so-called legacy and feels like he's whoring himself out. He was out in Australia doing Pirates of the Caribbean 5. And, and I do remember one wag at the time, because I, I used to work in entertainment journalism, and I do know a lot of entertainment journalists, and I do remember one wag at the time saying, you know, at least even Steve Guttenberg left Police Academy after Police Academy 4. And why is Johnny Depp still doing Pirates of the Caribbean 5? Now, Johnny Depp has always said, actually, on the record, that he was very happy to continue doing Pirates for as, as long as Disney wanted him. And it might be something to do with the tens of millions of dollars he earned from that franchise and from all those episodes. But privately, perhaps he wasn't sort of thinking about that much of the way things were going. So, yeah, he was he was unhappy around 2015, 2016. And that reflected is obviously his status of his relationship. And, and so where is Amber Heard at this stage in her career as an actress? Well, when she met Johnny Depp, she was 22 years old. She'd had a, a lead part in the film All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. She was a jobbing actress in Hollywood. And she met him around 2009. Yeah. Um, born in 1986. You know, she was four years old when Edward Scissorhands came out. And she had gone to Hollywood in 2003. So she'd been six years as a jobbing actress in Hollywood. Undeniably stunning. Undeniably beautiful woman. Um, obviously going to be watchable. Camera loved her. I don't think she was the world's greatest actor I don't think anyone thought she was the world's greatest actor, but she was seen as someone to watch and her, she had a good agent and her career was on the up. And The Rum Diary was a good film for her to get because of the kudos of working with Depp, of the Hunter S. Thompson, the sort of literary sensibility. And she was playing the part of Shenna, who is this siren woman who, who Bruce Robinson saw as representing an unattainable dream, someone who was always out of reach, so beautiful and so desirable, but yet so unattainable. So that that essentially is Amber Heard. You know, she 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 had that moment in her life where she was possibly the certainly one of the most beautiful women in the world. And that's when she walks into Johnny Depp's life. Pretty soon after, things start to go downhill. Now I suppose what we need to skip to is the accusations that were made mm. and the visceral reaction that people had about what was going on. And you, of course, were able to ask a lot of people their diagnosis of, of kind of what had yeah. counted for all of this frenzy. Well, she was taken down a hero. But of course, we'd had the Me Too movement in 2017. So he had his cultural power and she brought hers to the trial. Yeah. And what we saw really in that case was, you know, who was going to win out? The personality, the cultural icon or the collective social justice movement headed by a lesser known actress. But this, yeah, but this is the noise. This is the noise that I try to push away from my journalism. And that is worth mentioning. Anybody who reads this book, you're not going to get a big cultural critique of what went on. You cover it so objectively in the book, but that's why I wanted to talk about things close to the surface of, of oh, public so opinion. Well, that's why I think it's an important case. But what I tried to do was to push out the noise in, you know, in terms of going, right, what is my job as a journalist here is to try and pull together what we know, what we don't know, and try and turn that into a narrative that makes sense. So because I had the privilege of reporting both trials and was in a position to collect documentary information from both litigations, and because I had the transcripts from both trials, I could see how various witnesses presented information on each side of the Atlantic, Mm. and I was able to see where uh, the contemporaneous documentary evidence contradicted some of that witness testimony and where it 
corroborated some of that witness testimony and then build a picture using both cases to try and understand what we definitely do know did happen, mm. what people may have claimed happened that we can be pretty sure didn't, and where the unknowns in all of this are. Let's just start with what we definitely know did happen. What we definitely know is true, because Johnny Depp doesn't deny it. On two occasions, he has made unwanted physical contact with two different women. One of whom was a woman called Kelly Sue, whose wrist he grabbed whilst they were at a place called Hicksville. Um, as part of his birthday celebrations, he got very angry with her, grabbed her hand. And we know that he also accidentally, in his word, headbutted Amber Heard. She says it was deliberate. Those are the only two undenied occasions of physical contact between Johnny Depp and any other woman. And there is some evidence for him having done something else which was never properly um, ventilated in the US trial, but was ventilated in the UK trial. And this was when Johnny Depp allegedly kicked Amber Heard in the back on a, a private plane between, which was flying between Boston and LA. He denies it. Um, the witnesses um, from his side denied that it happened. Um, yet there is contemporaneous documentary evidence which suggests that it very much did. This contemporaneous documentary evidence was not admitted into the US trial and therefore the jury didn't have to make a decision on it. Beyond that, there's a lot of he said, she said. There are witnesses, including Amber Heard's sister Whitney, who says that she has seen Johnny Depp beating up Amber Heard. Amber Heard obviously details and documents many occasions where she said that she was being physically abused and sexually abused. But there is nothing that is uncontrovertible that backs up those allegations. So that's kind of where we are. Mm. And And... What I have tried to do is examine and explore how valid, important, relevant and testable some of that testimony is about some of those allegations and boil it down to those two moments where we know that he has made unwanted physical contact with women and whether that would amount to assault. I don't know. I mean, whether it's technically assault or not, I don't know. Uh, you know which jurisdiction may decide it is or isn't assault. I don't know, but are we going to be in a situation where we have these competing realities spinning out and having intended or unintended consequences and these incredible cultural battle lines uh, for forevermore? Or are they going to come to a single unified conclusion? Mm. And I have a feeling from just the way that things have gone since the trial, it's going to be the former rather than the latter. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, Amber Heard and her supporters have uh, set up a Twitter campaign to stop Cannes Film Festival because they promoted Johnny Depp's new movie on their opening night. That's right, Johnny yeah, Depp, Johnny Depp uh, was given a very warm reception at And Cannes, he was given a seven-minute standing ovation at Cannes. So, so, and also gave a, a speech at one of the presses where he said that he had no more use for Hollywood, something to that effect. I reckon if Disney offered him Pirate 6, he'd be back there <laughs> like a shot. But because the public wants to see it and he probably wants the money at the end of the day. You're quite right. They're coming at each other and at the jury from two different realities. But they're also coming at the entire world from a reality, a shared reality, as celebrity A-listers in Hollywood. That is several orders of magnitude bigger than the average life. I yes. mean, these, these, well, that's the thing. It's, it's both an opera. Heard and it's an opera. Are, are two people who live lives that don't lend themselves to impulse control, let's put it that way. They don't lend themselves to moderation or to necessarily always humility. I mean, however well they presented, however well Depp presented as being a man who was reflective and full of introspective, hard won wisdom through his own experience, 
people were willing to put aside the fact that they have absolutely nothing in common with these two. Why should they be rooting for them? And it just seemed to me like they were turning them into mascots for something personal to them. I think that's a really important point because so many of the people that I met some were fans and therefore they like Johnny Depp because he's Johnny Depp and Johnny Depp can do no wrong. That was definitely a take. But it wasn't the most nuanced take. There were people who were victims of sexual abuse and violence themselves who recognised in their minds what they saw as an abuser, but that abuser was Amber Heard. There were people who had seen female abusers in their familial relationships and seen good men downtrodden by those female abusers and saw this as a really important test case. And there were people, including one guy, a tattooist I met on the last day of the trial, who was out there supporting Johnny Depp, who had been cancelled by his community because a young woman complained about the way that he handled her when he was um, doing a tattoo for her. And he, because of the Me Too movement, didn't have an opportunity to put his point of view and I mean, I don't know the facts of the story, obviously, but I was, I was listening to what he was saying and why he was there. And he said that, that I don't think what I was doing at all was in any way disrespectful or, or sort of touchy-feely or anything like that. I was simply doing my job. She took offence. She complained about me. My business collapsed. And I've been on the run ever since, you know, trying to, trying to build a career somewhere where people won't be slagging me off on social media as being a pervert. Again, I don't know the facts of the story, but the point was he had been drawn to the case because he saw this as an opportunity to say women make false allegations and they destroy lives when they make false allegations. So you had those subsets of people, sometimes overlapping and interlocking, all drawn to this particular case and the men's rights movement in America who think feminism has gone too far and who think women can now manipulate the legal system to their own ends unfairly to disadvantaged men who have watched as, as feminism has baked in certain advantages to women. Got the feminists saying, well, of course, we need to have those uh, advantages baked in, women are the main caregivers, etc. Mm. But there are always exceptions that prove the rule. And, and there were a lot of exceptions that were coming towards this case, saying this is, this is important, this is why we are supporting it. And yes, you could say there's probably also rank misogyny. There are people who will say, well, obviously, she was manipulating him from the off. But the way she tells it, she fell in love. And so why shouldn't she fall in love with whoever she wanted to fall in love with? And yes, she's got a titanic ego. Yes, he's got a titanic ego. Yes, he had limitless money to behave as he chose to behave. And yes, he was surrounded by enablers who allowed him to indulge whatever fantasies and, and idiosyncrasies that he had. But that all in this huge sort of mixing pot of lived experience, fables, storytelling, journalism, and the, 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 the sort of whole knotty mess surrounding it is, is what I think makes it both important and interesting. But, but I always saw my job as go, well, let's just try and cut out yeah. that noise and just try and get to the heart of it. But, but you know, the book, the book, in the book, I do quote lots of people who I met and, and dealt with and who had very interesting perspectives on all of this. Yeah. And I try and do it without being pejorative and just sort of let, let them say what they want to say. If we hit pause there to open the menu at Babucci yes, and, uh, and have a very, very good order, idea. And maybe um, have another can, pint of Cobra. Yes, we can come back to I'm going to lead your you methodology tonight, Jack. I know it's a working night for you. <laughs> That's all right. I'm not working tomorrow. <laughs> You've already promised to bung me in an Uber at the end of all of this. <laughs> I will uh, bundle you into an Uber. <laughs> so looking at the menu then, what would you recommend, Nick? Unfortunately, I have a lot of go-to dishes. I was going to say Indian food is one of those things that always feels like stepping into a comfortable pair of yeah. old shoes. Yeah, and but this this is the thing. Much as I like a chicken madras, and they do a very good chicken madras here, I, 
I, I try not to sort of default to it. As you happen to have the page open on one of my favorite dishes, I'm going to recommend that, the Goan lamb shank. Oh, perfect. It is really nice. Uh, I'm going to go for a tandoori mixed grill. Walking a, a really thin tightrope as a journalist covering most court trials, I'm sure, having to be very precise, very careful what to reveal, what not to reveal, to get things in sequence, especially with such a high-profile case like that. I mean... You, I mean, you mentioned that, to me the earlier, as, being yeah. a journalist. Sure, that, that, sure. That, that is, you can never please yeah. everyone. I mean, because, you've attracted a lot of opprobrium since the publication of the book, just yeah. because this has been such a bifurcated story, right? The narrative that the Johnny Depp community, in particular, have, I think, understandably and possibly rightfully, been uh, propagating since the outcome of the Virginia trial, which Johnny Depp won, was that Johnny Depp won. Amber Heard was decided in the court of American law as a liar. And we derive meaning from court judgments which affect the way society sees people and has financial and legal implications pushing forward. However, there are a lot of interesting things that went on in both litigations. And of course, don't forget, in the UK, Johnny Depp was found to be a wife beater, essentially. The judge said that the son's description of him a wife beater, as a wife beater was, on the balance of probabilities given the seriousness of the allegations, substantially true. So you have two completely different results, and that's the fly in the ointment. And there are many, many, many people who want to dismiss the UK judgment, and yet I draw on it in my book. I look at the problems with the UK judgment Mm. in my book, uh, but I also look at some of the strengths of the UK judgment and some of the evidence that was given in the UK court which wasn't given in the US, and vice versa. You're picking a little seam there, which some people don't want you to pick at because it starts to disturb their sense of reality. And no one likes their sense of reality being disturbed, particularly if they consider it to be a settled situation. So, And as we've alluded to earlier, particularly if they feel they have a personal stake in it, vicariously. Yeah, vicariously or emotionally. And I understand that. Mm. You know, I've been a fan of people in the way that some people are fans of Johnny Depp. I've never become an obsessive fan, but I was certainly a massively committed fan to certain people in my youth. And, and I don't dismiss that lightly. I think that is a, I think that's healthy. I think, you know, we should have our important figures who we admire for the right reasons in our community, in our family, but also the way society is set up. I think we, we can and should be fans of people who represent certain things to us that we might not be getting from our immediate environment. So I have no problem with anyone being a massive Johnny Depp fan. And I also really have no problem with someone being a stan, someone being a fan who is so committed to the object of their hero worship that they will hear no word against them. When you are dealing with a really, really complex subject and a really, really contentious subject, there isn't, you know, it's a great responsibility to have. Pressure is a privilege. I know that every word that I write is going to be poured over by people, partly to try and slag it off, partly to investigate it, partly to take some kind of strength or, or, or sucker from it because I have done the work. I've done the work and you can dismiss it if you want. You can dismiss it if you want to try, but there's an undeniability about my experience as a journalist and the work that I've done and I'm happy to be challenged on it. I don't have a problem with being scrutinised. What I do have a problem with is abuse. You've received your fair share? Of yeah, the, 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 the look, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind getting abuse i mean i've developed quite a thick skin um and i've I've had had it 
when I've come into contact with other stories, mm. usually with, again, blindly loyal supporters who don't like a neutral or objective perspective because it isn't one-sided enough. When they at you on Twitter, say, and engage you in comments, um, do you have a, a, a standard method for engaging them in a way that is going to either neutralise their tactics right. or... There are various different techniques that you can deploy. And right now, I haven't been on Twitter for the last five days because it all got a bit toxic. It all got a bit much. It all got to a point whereby you're kind of arguing with potatoes. Why argue with a fanatic? You're only ever going to lose and you're only going to have to soak up loads of abuse and you're never going to change their mind. So sometimes you can go into battle because you're feeling strong, but sometimes you feel worn down and, and you withdraw. And I don't, I'm not one of these people who will have a Twitter flounce and say, that's it, I'm not, I'm not doing Twitter anymore. It's too toxic, it's too awful. I mean, Twitter is a toxic swamp, but Twitter is also been an incredible source of enlightenment for me it's i've been able to make a living through it and i've learned a huge amount and i've met lots of people through it who i've developed really good relationships with it is all human life all human life is is there everyone has an equal opinion even people who perhaps don't have valid ones mm. and so you've just got to pick and choose and at the moment i'm taking some time off but i'm going to go back because I like being on there, but I've also got to look after my own mental health. And, and I, I'm, I'm very good at reading the signs when I know that I'm being got down. And, and what are those signs? Um, I uh, got signed off work a very long time ago because I was in a very stressful job and uh, it wasn't going well. And I went to see my GP because I was having difficulties um, just trying to see a way through it and he just said you're stressed i'm going to sign you off work for a couple of weeks just don't do any more work don't think about it and i, and I remember the physical kind of feeling of being stressed uh and how it felt slightly overwhelming and now and that was god more than 20 years ago and i now know and it's only happened a few times in my life since but i now know what that rising feeling mm. is of it's that sort of i'm not quite in control i'm slightly panicky i am not necessarily making the right decisions and i have been able to recognize that and go and and because i'm freelance mm. i'm very lucky in that i can just go well, i'm gonna back off for a bit it's really healthy that you come to that you were just ringing at your neck earlier you're sort of suggesting yeah, it, there's a sort of symptom it, it, that occurs a physical symptom where you yeah. feel it rising in the back of your mind in the back of your, your the back of your neck and you're just thinking okay and so the launch of this book has been quite stressful because mm. obviously you you want to make sure that it's as bulletproof as it can be has this been the most stressful part of the journey no, I think being out there in Virginia was, was the hardest bit. I, I, I latched on to a few people who were really good people. Some were journalists. One was a, a particular ally who just, she took a view of this, this story and she was very pro Johnny Depp. But we recognized something in each other, which was just that we get on. Let's not talk about the case or what we think about it. Let's just enjoy each other's company. And so there were certain people that um helped me while i was out there but it was it was a very intense experience but it was still the, the one of the most privileged experiences that i've had in my entire career i met some incredible people and actually when you sit down face to face with people who might be 
incredibly aggressive towards you online, the humanity comes out and mm. the shared shared values come out and the ability to just communicate come out. And so those were some of the greatest moments where I got to sit down and talk to people who had really interesting perspectives and just sort of get to hear their story. So you described Twitter just then as a toxic swamp. Yeah. I mean, that's one way of putting it. It, it seemed to resemble during the, the peak of the Depp Heard trial, a kind of arcade people would just go in and pick up their Urzat's machine gun and start shooting at the screen. I mean, the whole thing became yeah. gamified. It did become gamified and, and, and unnecessarily so. I mean, I can't remember. Shockproof Beats, that is their Twitter name, who um, w- w- wrote this wonderful Twitter thread about uh, being on ketamine whilst trying to serve uh, Mary Robinson, the Irish president, at, at some event, who then became a Guardian columnist. Um, described Twitter as a, a micro-blogging site riddled by Nazis. And when Twitter first started in 2008, 2009, it was a lovely place. People were just sharing joy and, and interesting and funny things. I don't know. It, it's it's the, the, the toxicity is, in my view, unnecessary. Uh, yet other people consider it a sort of safety valve. They blow off on Twitter. It's a, it's a rage room. Nick, how was your main? It was hopefully healthier than yours. <laughs> I didn't you have any sort of leaner option. I didn't go for bread, but you know, yeah, it was absolutely spot on. I did it was well it. worth it, though. I I wanted to ask you about uh, the most surprising moments in covering this trial, the ones that that will stay with you forever, the ones that really kind of signaled a big plot twist where you thought, ah, this changes everything. I mean, there are so many things which are inconsequential in terms of the wider story but i remember just sitting there thinking the jury are lapping this up and that really only comes from sort of watching a trial from start to finish there was this tiny moment tiny tiny moment where amber heard's acting coach talked about having seen johnny Depp being aggressive and launching himself at amber heard speaking to amber heard and Amber Heard disclosing to her the violence, the alleged violence in their relationship. And all these things which you would have thought you'd be going, holy moly, here is an independent witness who, yes, was a friend of Amber Heard, yes, was a someone who Amber Heard paid to provide services, in this case, acting, coaching. But this is someone who has no skin in the game, just calling it. But this throwaway line that she said, Christina Sexton was her name, where she was saying, oh, we would have to spend some time before our sessions would begin just dealing with her crying on my shoulder. And then she said something like, which is ironic because Amber has a bit of a problem crying when it comes to acting. And she'd said this. And one of the biggest things about the internet and the way that Amber Heard was perceived when she gave evidence was that she was exceptionally emotional. Her emotions were all over the place, so there were lots of emotions. But when she was really, really emotional, she wasn't really crying. And I just remember thinking, the jury are going to pick up on this because they, they will have seen her giving evidence and being very emotional and not actually crying. I mean, I've looked at a couple of screenshots that someone has sort of produced whereby there was a tear on her cheek at one point but she was incredibly emotional about this appalling stuff that she said was happening to her and 
sobbing, the not no tears actually come. And then her acting coach goes, "Yeah, when she's acting, she has difficulty crying." <laughs> and I just remember thinking, all that evidence, there is one thing the jury is going to take away from that. For Johnny Depp and his team's part. I mean, of course, the fans lapped it up, whatever happened. But yeah. within the courtroom, was there any moment where you thought that was potentially a misstep? But you're a jury, you're lay people, you're American. There's an amazing all-American hero sitting two yards from you, being completely relaxed about everything that's thrown at them. And he was circumlocutory when it came to the point. Right. Uh, especially early on in, in his evidence. You make it sound like Amber Heard never stood a chance. I mean, is there some truth to that? Jack. Maybe she was lying. And the jury saw through her and Johnny Depp's legal team knew where to press the right buttons and they knew exactly where to go after her because fundamentally no one knows what happened behind closed doors. And if she was lying and Johnny Depp's team were confident that she was and they were a very, very good unit, I have to say every lawyer I spoke to out in Virginia we're looking at that trial from a legal perspective. So I, I, you know, I was in the canteen, I spoke to attorneys and they were looking at this from a legal perspective and they were just saying, Johnny Depp's team is better. They are a better bunch of lawyers than Amber Heard's team. So they spotted the weaknesses in her arguments and I don't think that Amber Heard's team were that good at getting anything that damning out of Johnny Depp. And the jury just looked at her and just thought, no, I'm not having it. And, you know, there is something that I always thought I would say on the record, but it, there's never been an occasion to say it. I've always thought, just fundamentally, for no apparent reason, but I've always thought that were I ever on trial, I would like to be tried by a jury rather than a judge. I've got no actual real reason to back that up. And you could say, well, because I'm a white middle class man, maybe I have got a better chance with the jury than a learned expert judge. But I still think that the fundamental principles of justice are served by having lay people in a jury who are the ultimate decision makers. And it may well be, it may well be, I don't know, I'm not saying this as fact or that it's my opinion, it may well be that a learned expert judge who studied the evidence for many, many weeks and came to the conclusion that Johnny Depp was a wife beater had the wool pulled over his eyes by an expert liar, and it may be that a jury of seven people in the United States saw through those lies for whatever reason and decided Amber Heard was making things up. It may be that that's a slightly emotional response. It may be that that's just, well, of course you'd want a jury to try. You'd want 12 or 7 or however many people to be making a decision about your future rather than a fusty, fuddy-duddy old judge. But then... If I was going to be flying a plane, I'd quite like an expert pilot alongside me rather than someone who'd just been picked at random because they seem like a good sort of person who might be able to fly a plane. And, and again, you talk about baked in things that are baked in society and the rules and the way society works. Society works to my advantage as a white middle class man. Society works to my advantage. Society works to Johnny Depp's advantage as a rich white man. And... I wouldn't say it actively works to disadvantage other people. I think it sort of structurally works to disadvantage other people. And I think women are a group of people who are structurally disadvantaged by society. The men's rights movement in America disagree. They actually think that actually the law has now been shifted so far by feminist power bases campaigning for rights that they 
have good intentions to claim that now men are being disadvantaged by false accusations and by manipulative women. Where are we now with all right. of this? Deb and Heard have gone their separate ways. They, I believe Amber Heard is now living in Spain, is she not? That's correct. She appealed the verdict. He counter-appealed. They came to a settlement whereby she would pay him a million dollars, which he said he's going to give to charity. She said that the settlement does not include an NDA. Therefore, she is still free to speak her truth, which she hasn't yet done. Johnny Depp's film, first film since the verdict, opened the Cannes Film Festival, Jean Dubarry. And he gave a press conference in which he described the UK judgment as just vowels and consonants in the air, which is essentially what the Virginia verdict was. So I don't think he had any particular intellectual insight into the way the last 12 months have gone, but his rehabilitation arc is heading towards a big Hollywood ending. However, there is the fly in the ointment of Amber Heard's supporters, Gloria Steinem, the legendary feminist who wrote a letter which was signed by 100 signatories, individuals and groups, saying that the abuse of Amber Heard is entirely wrong. Uh, the way that she was done through this trial by media is entirely wrong. So the baggage that will follow these people to the ends of the earth will only stop when they die. And the, the shit fight that continues to happen on Twitter will never end. Once again, thank you very much. Jack, I'm so glad that you guys actually have a decent meal in a decent Indian restaurant. And I'm very glad that you're my guest and we're able to come down to Watton on Thames and enjoy it with me. You're right. I'm your guest and you're my guest. <laughs> Thanks very much, Nick. No problem. Till next time. <laughs>